everyone, and thank you for joining us. I'm here with my co-host, Eric Johnson. I'm Alicia Swami, and we are Exposing Mold. We have Dr. Tamara Tumanen joining us today. She is a microbiologist from Finland, and she is highly knowledgeable in dampness and mold hypersensitivity syndrome. She has many publications on this issue and is doing a really good job at trying to raise awareness of what's going on in the mold community. And today she's going to be just giving us a really awesome presentation on some of her work and what she knows. This podcast is brought to you by Michael Rubino, The Mold Medic, and All-American Restoration, the first and only mold remediation company in the country specializing in remediating mold for people with underlying health conditions or mold sensitivities. They've quickly become the most recommended remediation company from doctors and mold inspectors nationwide. Check out our show notes to pick up your copy of Michael Rubino's book, The Mold Medic, an expert guide on mold remediation, or visit allamericanrestoration.com to get your home assessed and get your health back on track today. This podcast is brought to you by My Myco Lab. Are you sick and tired of being sick and tired? Have you gone from doctor to doctor, had lots of tests, tried many supplements, medications, vitamins, and still feel awful? You and many others like you could be suffering from exposure to molds and mycotoxins where you live or where you work. My MycoLab is the only blood test available that tests immune system reactivity to mycotoxins. Visit MyMycoLab.com to order your test today. Good evening or good morning, everybody, depending where you're living. So I'm going to uh, share with you my knowledge about dampness and mold hypersensitivity syndrome. I'm a medical doctor. I got my degree in uh, the first Moscow Medical Institute, and I made my PhD dissertation at Helsinki University. I have been studying this issue, mold-related disease, since 2014. So I have got the question from your community. So these are the questions I'm going to go through in this lecture. So your question was what dampness and mold hypersensitivity syndrome means to me personally. So uh, this is, in fact, my conflict of interest. I, I got personally involved into this when I was working in the central hospital in Mikkeli, that is 250 kilometers from Helsinki. I was a chief doctor in the laboratory of clinical microbiology. And I have been working there already four years. And then in 2014, I started to feel very strange symptoms. As a medical doctor, I could not understand what kind of disease I have. And uh, my colleagues, infection disease specialists, they also could not understand. I was coughing and I always felt worse when I came back in the beginning of the week, started my work. And I continued to work even without voice because I was responsible for the laboratory. But when suddenly the technicians found these growing mushrooms on the walls, this is the inner wall of the laboratory, that raised their interest and uh, the company was called and they opened the walls and then they found there was infestation with toxic molds all over. So I was sitting in the very toxic aquarium at that time and that explained my disease. Um, so that was in 2014. I had to quit my work as a um, clinical microbiologist in the lab because I got sensitized. I was four years unemployed and sick and trying to collect my health. I, wa I wanted to work. And at that time, I read every day something about a mold-related disease. And slowly, I, I got this knowledge what is it is all about. Then in 2018, I started to see patients with the similar symptoms and I was treating them and doing some research. Now I'm retired, and now I'm more focused on COVID issues. And in fact, I'm quitting my research in, uh, in this topic. And I think we have made a good start, and um, younger doctors will continue to dig the problems and find 
treatment for these patients. So this disease, dampness and mold hypersensitivity syndrome, it has a very big impact on a person and on a society. We can say it is a neglected disease. There is no ICD-10 and uh, no ICD-11 code. Now, when we are all overwhelmed with the COVID pandemic, it seems that the medical community has forgotten about all other diseases. We actually have a lot of other problems, even more debilitating. And uh, I would say that dampness and mold hypersensitivity syndrome, it's a hidden by pandemic because there are a lot of morbidity in UK, in Nordic countries, in USA, and so on. This disease may lead to a complete disability. It has a very inverse impact on the patient's quality of life, his or her competitiveness and survival. It leads to poverty, marginalization, higher morbidity, and even mortality and suicides because the patients, they are not understood by their relatives, by their spouses, by the doctors, and they feel as if being left outside their society. It is very expensive because it's not only about healthcare, it's also about constructions, construction of new, new buildings. So at the time when I got this disease, it was 2014, I got an invitation from the journal Frontis in Immunology, and they asked me if I can make a research topic. And then I was thinking, what would be an interesting topic? And then we coined the term dampness and mold hypersensitivity syndrome. And this is one of the articles published in this research topic by Professor Willy Waltonen. And I would say he made a very big contribution to this field. He is an infection disease specialist and he treated several thousand of patients as an infection this is doctor. He saw a lot of patients, and when he interviewed these patients, he found that they had, in their anamnesis, uh, they had exposure to molds. And I recommend to many of you to read the paper because you will find the description of uh, the clinical criteria he developed for this disease. And here is my paper. I wrote it together with one colleague. So here we demonstrate the clinical presentation of this disease into Finnish cohorts. And this is another paper from the same research topic. Uh, one colleague found that there, there is a very high association of so-called non-thyroidal illness and exposure to mold. This is a hypothyroidism on the tissue level, and the many doctors may not be aware of this association. So if we speak about the definition, what is important to know, it's a severe, it's a chronic disease, and it is multi-organ disease. Today, only involvement of respiratory system is acknowledged, and asthma is linked to the disease, but in fact... It is a disease of the whole body. It is a progressive disease, especially when the exposure will be continued. And as I said, Professor Willy Waltonen has set clinical criteria to describe this syndrome. So the criteria are the patient has a history of water damage in the building, either it is a home or workplace. And then he or she may develop sick building syndrome. And at the beginning, it is a reversible condition. When the patient exits the building, the symptoms may disappear. But the term sick building syndrome, it's very imprecise because uh, the patient may feel not healthy in any buildings with, uh, for example, whether the temperature is too high, whether it is too noisy. It is sick building, but here we use this terminology in relation to mold infestation. Then these patients who are exposed to indoor air molds, they have increased rate of common infections. For example, they may have more than three sinusitis per year. This is unusual. The observation of Professor Willy Waltonen is that approximately 50% of 
cases with prolonged exposure, they may develop multiple chemical sensitivity and some may develop a sensitivity to electromagnetic field. And uh, what is uh, interesting, many patients, they develop sense scent sensitivity so they can smell the moldy smell from a bystander. So it's a kind of a precaution to the patient that there is um, mold around. I think it's a it's an interesting, interesting feature. Okay, so these are the five clinical criteria. There is no single laboratory method to confirm this disease. So when I speak about dampness and mold hypersensitivity syndrome, this is the terminology that we developed for this research topic. And uh, I want to explain to you what does it mean. So the first two words, dampness and mold, refer to into air dampness microbiota. And we should here underline that it is not commercial microbiota because the people who criticize us, they say, oh, we have microbes everywhere. So it's really not true. But here we have to understand that these microbiota mostly toxin producers. So the people are exposed to toxic products. It's not something that surrounds us every day. And the central word here is hypersensitivity. So there are multiple hypersensitivity that can occur. There are immunological hypersensitivity activation of type 1 immune response, for example, asthma that is well known, and type 4 hypersensitivity, pneumonitis or alveolitis. It depends how you use terminology. In some patients, there could be vasculitis, it's type 3 hypersensitivity. Then we have also olfactory sensitization, as I said, enhanced mold sensing, multiple chemical sensitivity, it's activation of TRPY1 and TRPA1 receptors, sensitivity to common infections, intolerance to some antigens, allergens, food intolerance, irritable bowel syndrome, toxicant-induced loss of tolerance. Sometimes it, is, it can be connected with this syndrome, hypersensitivity to pain, hyperalgesias, and so on. So hypersensitivity can be in very many different organs and systems. And it is a syndrome, meaning that, that it is a systemic condition. And uh, when we got interested in this disease, we got in contact with the Finnish midwives. This is the picture of the Helsinki Obstetric Hospital that was shut Many midwives and nurses, they complained about very strange symptoms. And finally, it was found that this building was infested with molds. We studied the cohort of the Finnish midwives, something about 100 persons. They participated in our study and we found that there is increased risk for neurological symptoms and multiple chemical sensitivity. And then we were contacted by... Finnish policemen. This is from Oulu in the north of Finland. The policemen, predominantly men who are not hysterical, who are very well trained and they have good nerves. So they compl their complaints were real. And it was found that the building where they worked, it was also infested with the dampness microbiota. And they volunteered to participate in our. In our study, so we studied, made the questionnaire to this cohort, and we found, interestingly, that they also had approximately three-fold risk of having neurological complications. This is men cohort, also about 100 persons. And after that, we were contacted by parents of pupils from the northern Finland, from one of the school, and they, we were told that these pupils have very strange symptoms. They were tired and uh, they cannot attend school, a lot of gastrointestinal problems, and so on. And then we started to study, although, although the municipality of this place did not want us to study this place, because 
As I said, this condition is very downplayed. Here is the Petri dish with the collected moles from the air and the results of the microbiological work. We also used a new method of collection indoor air. This is a metal plate, and uh, when the air, the air then conden condensates on the this cold metal plate, and then we have a water condensate that can be tested in toxicological studies. So we use this new method to study the um, air of the school. And here on the right hand side, you will see the growing mold. And as you see, there are bubbles. Mold expels small vesicles. And these vesicles, they, are, they contain more toxins than the spores. So it is very important to study the vapor in the building, even more important than to count how many spores they are. And this effect of air contamination was described in Finland by the group of Professor Miria Salkinoja-Salonen. So my view is that this disease is, so it's, as I see, it's a natural cause of the disease. At the beginning, as I said, it is a kind of sick building syndrome. The pe person might have uh, some symptoms and when the exposure is finished, then the symptoms will disappear. But there is a kind of priming. And when we have a new booster, now booster is a very fashionable word, but here booster means that a new exposure from indoor air molds, then the symptoms may get worse. There are more symptoms and uh, they are more severe. And then the recovery is very uncertain. And here in this book, uh, we describe uh, multiple chemical sensitivity and how it is related to exposure to molds. And here you see that many clinical conditions, they are like intervolved, chronic fatigue syndrome, irritable bowel syndrome, and so on. They are all interconnected. The person may experience all of them or partly of these symptoms and also multiple chemical sensitivities linked to these disorders. And this is a busy slide, but here we describe but what mechanisms we have the damage in different organs, and this is also related to mold exposure and multiple chemical sensitivity. So I was asked what is the difference between uh, dampness and mold hypersensitivity syndrome and um, SIRS and uh, chronic fatigue syndrome. And um, as I try to explain that there is no clear border between these syndromes, Chronic fatigue syndrome is often associated with many diseases. Often it comes after virus disease, but it has been recognized. There is an ICD-10 code for this disease. And many patients exposed to molds, they experience also chronic fatigue syndrome. And um, as we know, post-COVID syndrome and post-vaccination syndrome, they can uh, have the features of chronic fatigue syndrome. And the clinical criteria for this disorder, they have been published. Then you ask about chronic inflammatory response syndrome. This term was coined by Dr. Richard Shoemaker, who made a big contribution to study this disease. But in my opinion, it's a kind of general name for many clinical conditions and this name is true for dampness, uh, true for the exposure to dampness microbiota, but also, for example, rheumatic diseases and goat, they can fall into this category, so it's less precise. So there are other acronyms and definitions, for example, TILT, toxicon-induced loss of tolerance, that happens in mold-exposed patients, but it, it is also the term that can be linked to, for example, Gulf War syndrome, aerotoxic syndrome, exposure to pesticides, POTS, it's post postural tachycardia syndrome. Some patients with advanced dampness and mold, mold hypersensitivity syndrome, they have POTS. And then we have here RADS, ROOTS, these are reactive airway dysfunction syndromes, and they are linked to multiple chemical sensitivity. So as you see, it's a quite a big 
I would not say it's a mess, but a lot of uh, definitions and a lot of abbreviations. So in the first place, this syndrome is a biotoxicosis. That's how we see it. And it is biotoxicosis because the person is exposed to fungi and gram-positive, gram-negative bacteria. It's an ecological system that is changing all the time. And there are different species and um, different toxin producers that can potentiate the action of each other. Also, molds can emit beta-glucans and the person can be exposed to fungi spores and nanoparticles and many volatile and semi-volatile organic compounds. And there are very many different chemical substances that can be found in the air. Also, the, the building material can emit some impurities, for example, formaldehyde in the air. So it's a multiple of different irritants and xenobiotics. And so very often there is an exposure to mycotoxins and um, many different mycotoxins have been described and uh, we have a lot of knowledge about their effects on, on the cellular level. They were described for food intoxication, but the same toxins were found from dampness microbiota. Our latest finding was we found mycophenolic acid in the urine of patients with the dampness and mold hypersensitivity syndrome. This is very intriguing finding this should be repeated and studied on a larger scale because mycophenolatmophytil is an immunosuppressant and can give a hint why those patients who have been exposed to molds for a long time, and there is increased risk for oncological diseases. And um, there are multiple effects on um, our immunity. Some uh, mycotoxins are carcinogenic. It's a known fact. They disturb antigen presentation and inhibit adaptive immunity. They can cause cytokine production. They can break blood and brain barrier. And they can also inhibit the function of innate immunity. There are multiple, multiple effects on the body. And when we think about the, their effects on the cellular level, it's an oxidative stress reaction that our cells will experience and impair of a function of mitochondria that are cellular energy factories. And therefore, patients will have a cellular energy deficit that might explain that some will experience chronic fatigue syndrome. And immunological effects, as I said, there are different types of hyperreactivity, type 1, type 3, and type 4. It's also activation of mast cells. There is increase of histamine and also imbalance between T-helper 1 and T-helper 17 arms of adaptive immune system. What are the long-term health effects? So asthma is a known outcome if a person is exposed for a long time. But neurological conditions, neurological symptoms, they are less studied and less known, but in our studies, at least threefold increased risk to have neurological conditions. And in both men and women, we found that multiple chemical sensitivity may develop. We didn't find it in children yet. Maybe it needs a more prolonged exposure. And um, there is this autonomia of the peripheral nervous system. And we published this paper. We did a study on autoantibodies together with an Israeli group. And um, that can explain why some patients might have um, heart palpitations and pots. There is association with autoimmune diseases, especially of the thyroid. And there are rare autoimmune diseases and association with increased incidence of cancer. But this is very difficult to study 
because if you think from the ethical point of view, you cannot make a control group and the observation time is very long. So and to answer the question, to confirm or to refute whether or not there is an association, you need to do epidemiological studies. So I want to thank you for your attention. And I hope that young doctors will promote the knowledge of this disease and that we definitely need the ICD-11 code for this chronic condition. Thank you. That was wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Tumanen. And a lot of the stuff was pretty mind-blowing because I'm not sure if you know, but Eric and I and Keely have also been highly mold injured. And that's why we started exposing mold because when we were sick, we were hitting you know, brick walls, no one could help us. And we had to help ourselves and go rogue. And so that's how we got all connected together. And um, you mentioned that you were sick and it took you about four years to get well. And I'm just very curious as to what you did to get well from this illness. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's really very, very hard when you feel physically ill and then you're not accepted. The doctors do not believe even I am a colleague I'm experienced and I'm a researcher and then you have this attitude that nobody really believes you. But what I did, first of all, I found that being on the fresh air and breathing exercises, they are very important. It's very important when your family supports you. If you have at least somebody who take care of you, then I found that in my case, sauna was a very good remedy, and I went to sauna every other day. Thanks, in Finland, we have a lot of sauna, and it was summertime when my disease started, and I was in, this, in our summer place, and um, my husband did sauna for me almost every day in the beginning. So the perspiration, the detoxification, the sweating, and the mycotoxins, they might penetrate from your skin and I think it's important and also I I went to so-called salty rooms and I, I have a publication on that if you look at the Google what kind of positive effect the exposure to salt in the air how much relief it will give to the patients so we have written with one researcher the treatment in this salt, so-called salt rooms. So these were my my important remedies. And certainly I, I started to treat my asthma, but I didn't want to go with a steroid treatment for a long time. At the beginning, I needed, and certainly I want to say to patients, if you need to take medicine, I think it's good, but the minimum time, the best, because your body is not capable of detoxification of many compounds. And certainly then I started to put attention to my D vitamin level. I was not so interested in that before, unfortunately. From that time, I started to use large doses of vitamin D and ubiquinone and microelements, and I, I, I got the results for all microelements. And I started to supplement my food. And I was cooking before myself. I didn't use junk food before, but even more focus I put on what I was eating. And I think time and avoidance, that is very important when you when you know what is not good for you, you have to believe your body. And staying at home and open, opening the windows, so I want to, to have the fresh air all the time. And when I started to work, I always opened the air. Even there was minus 20 outside, but I thought I will better feel cold than I, I don't have a fresh air. It was very important for me, especially when I had patients who came from moldy homes, I reacted on them. And they understood that I had my symptoms and we had very, very good discussion. And, you know, when the person is exposed to mold, he feels when there is a new exposure, he might lose his voice and he might react with 
with boys. So I think it's important to to have a fresh ventilation, to have fresh air. That is what I did. Wow. You know, that's <laughs> pretty spot on with what we've all done to, to figure out what to do for ourselves. You know, I find even the doctors that are quote unquote mold experts, they don't understand the hypersensitivity aspect yeah. quite well yet, at least. So they, you know, provide many protocols and supplements and whatever, and you seem to get worse. And it seems that yes, fresh air and avoidance is is, is mm-hmm. important. I mean, that's that's step one. To that. This is uh, th- this is the code: avoidance and fresh air. And I think uh, this salt rooms and perspiration in in sauna. This is the core treatment. And uh, if you take as less chemicals, because drugs are chemicals, this is better. But if you're really in need, you have to to take, but for a short time. And then the exercise, I always uh, told to my patients, do not do very extensive exercise. You can just walk around. And what is also important to take care of uh, your stomach, maybe you you need to to, to make some tests uh, because, as I said, intolerance to some food products may develop so you you should know what what is good for you to eat and i use some you know clay but you you know how to use it be, between their um dinner uh, between the feeds not not to absorb some important elements silicium compounds uh, just to expel all the toxins from the intestine how about activated charcoal? I haven't used it, but I have used silicium. But this is the, the protocol I used for my patients. First of all, we talked. I explained what they should not do. And I wrote to them the certificate if they were from the Maldi school that they should avoid, that the school should organize for them home studies or for the workers uh, they should be transferred to a cleaner place and then I explained that not vigorous physical exercise and these baths and then I had to fix the sufficiency of all their microelements in their body and for that we have a laboratory so I did very thorough laboratory check and uh, then I put their for example, magnesium and manganese, uh, if we have reference values, I put to the upper quartile of the reference values. So we had different prescriptions and I titrated them. I tried to figure and to push the sufficiency of all microelements. And then I used also neurolipids. We have uh, some products to help them with their brain fog. It's a structural component for neurons. So we gave them neurolipids and um, antioxidants. About the only thing that could possibly clear, be cleared up is yeah. that the reason that chronic fatigue syndrome is confusing is that at the time, doctors Gary Holmes and John Kaplan, there was nothing about toxic mold in the literature. So they focused on the virus. And when they wrote the chronic fatigue syndrome definition, they strictly wrote it with a viral aspect in view and nothing about the associated sick building syndrome. Simple as that. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I have found the same. It it is connected to viral syndrome. This is because uh, it was not very known that a mold exposure is connected. But in our publications, we wrote that they are very, very much linked. So there are many, many predisposing conditions to develop chronic fatigue syndrome. And mold mold exposure is one of those. It's true. Very little publications on that. But I hope that maybe young doctors will one day be interested. Yeah, this concept of priming was uh, really outstanding because people who had been in water-damaged buildings, they could walk into a building that was not necessarily as bad as the one that made them sick, but being primed, they would react anyway and be more susceptible to viral infections. Yeah, 
Yeah, that observation came to us through our own disease and through the clinical experience. Yeah, and you know, when doctors say, oh, that's something strange, why somebody really reacts in one building and the other do not, but that can be explained by, you know, there are some moldy kindergartens, mold schools, and if the person has been exposed through the young age, he is primed. And when he goes to during the, their work to some moldy building, he will react immediately while the others are not primed. They can stand better. There are many factors why some will react and some will not. One is the earlier exposure, the cumulative previous exposure. The other is, um, as we know, women, they will react probably more likely than men. And there is nothing about that they are more hysterical. This is just because a woman's body contains more fatty uh, tissue than the men's body. And we know from the studies on um, alcohol that women can stand less alcohol than men. It's, it's normal physiology of human beings and uh, has nothing to do with the woman's unstable mind, as we showed uh, from midwives and policemen, they had similar diseases. Also, I think the genetic factors, what kind of genes we have uh, to detoxify the xenobiotics, this is very important. And also, what kind of food people are eating and uh, the sufficiency of many microelements. For example, selenium is very important. So I use this to my patients in the beginning, but then if they don't have any food intolerance, then you don't need too much, too much different products. But I think at the beginning, I think it's much better than um, other drugs. Activated charcoal, for example, I think it's uh, a little bit too old-fashioned. Yeah, this is very, very well tolerated. And this is produced in Finland. I think uh, there are many other similar producers. I'd just like to point out one thing about the clusters. There was a question, if everybody's in a sick building, why do some people react and others seem to escape with only mild illness? And we found that in certain clusters where building was damaged and a mold would light up, just in one corner where people who got the sickest, who were in closest proximity to a certain colony of mold, there seemed to be a correlation that like one mold was far more toxic than anything else that was in the building. And when we tested, we found they were, they were trichothecene producers. They, they were toxin producers. Yeah, they were trichothecene producers such as stachybotrys, fusarium, and ketone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think uh, there are many, many different aspects, uh, but... I think because if, for example, the pupils are sitting in the classroom and when they breathe, the air humidity increases. And then these droplets, what I showed to you, the exosomes, uh, they're called, they aerodynamically, they move across the whole classroom. So I think everybody is exposed. So they are volatile, these um, tox- toxins, and they are found in, in vapor, not, not only in, in, in spores. Maybe spores, they cannot fly to, too far, but vesicles, they move in the, whole, in the whole classroom. Yeah, these vesicles, the uh, ooze, the sap that comes out, we call them gutation droplets. Yes, yes, gutation droplets, yes. It's a very crystalline structure. And when it dries out, these gutation droplets fragment and put out a purified form of the toxin, which seems to be so separate that there's a question, maybe we're not even picking this up by PCR. May I ask you one question? I I, I was interested, but as I said to you now, I, I want to, to finish this research area. Do you make, do you know that people are doing urinalysis using some spectroscopy methods to study toxins in the urine of patients. I think that will lead us to the definitive diagnosis. 
when we detect mycotoxins in the patient's urine and also in the collected air, if we can prove that there is the same toxin, then it's a proof of the concept. Do you know that in USA, they are doing this mycotoxin detection in patients' urine? Yeah, I've heard about this research, but so far as I know, they haven't found a direct correlation. I don't think they've done enough work to see what's specifically in the air and in the toxin to find out the, that they can establish this as a cause of disease. Mm, I think this is the really the roadmap, and we try to publish this paper. It's very difficult to publish something like that, and you need to have resources to do this study. And since I started my research in this area, I have never got any any grant to do to do this research. And that makes it very, very difficult. Well, everybody has a vested interest in suppressing this because of the economic consequences. Mm, mm, yeah. But it's uh, easy to deny <laughs> not to invest money into study. But in the long run, I think it's a wrong decision because if you make the early diagnosis, then you have the proof. And because treating of chronic, chronically ill patients, it's very expensive. And losing and if patients, if patients only understand that they've been primed by a sick building, then mm. they know to avoid exposure situations that yeah. could precipitate them into a severe illness. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And this is important to understand for the people and for the medical community that predisposing exposure really it it means something for the patients. It's it's not just uh, come and go. Everything that we deal with uh, make, leaves a memory. I think memory is a very interesting topic. We have um, our memory and uh, how we react to many uh, psychological conditions uh, comes from our childhood, but we have also immunologic memory. And it is not only about infectious diseases. Well, thank you very much for your work. This has been a fantastic presentation. And you really hit it spot on. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I'm very glad if I can, if I can help. And um, it would be nice to talk with young doctors and to see that they catch uh, this challenge because it's really a challenge to study this topic, yeah. especially when there is such a big denial. It's, it's not easy and no grants at all. But I hope in the long run, the knowledge will increase. And I also thank you for, for inviting me and sorry for not participating earlier, but I, I decided now, better no, later than never. <laughs> thank you so much again for offering your time. Uh, you know, I, I really appreciate it. And I'm just really curious because you said you're more involved with COVID and this long COVID phenomenon is so prevalent and growing rampant. And I'm just really curious if you suspect a mold component to this long COVID syndrome. I have to be honest, I don't treat any COVID patients and I'm not now in the clinical work, but I got a letter from one US doctor and she wrote to me that in her practice, she found that long COVID was with patients who were mold exposed. And uh, maybe one day we will write some paper on that, but it's not my observation. I think it is, it is feasible. It is, it is very feasible that it is because the weaker the person is, the less resources the person has for proper recovery. I think it's very logic to think about this. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm just curious who the doctor is. Are you able to share? Uh, I think I can. I cannot tell because I, I don't have her permission to, okay. to tell. I'm sorry, I, I cannot tell her name. Oh, yeah, that's totally fine. Maybe we could ask for permission later and reconnect. Maybe, maybe. Then I have to ask her and then I, I have to connect you with her. Okay. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank mm -hmm. you. Again. And then I, I was just really curious about the hyperthyroidism. 
being caused by mold or there's association with mold? Is that an advanced stage? I think also here, nobody really studies. It's also clinical observation of uh, one of my colleagues. And I asked her to pull her data and she presented the clinical data on her patients. She is not a researcher. She is a clinician. And I was very thankful that she raised this question. I hope somebody will study this one day. And this is also logic because what happens here, it's the loss of energy by the cells. So it is connected chronic fatigue syndrome and non-thyroidal illness. It's on the cellular level. It sounds very logic. Yeah. Wow. That was just really interesting to me to see that connection. I also wanted to probe the, the hypersensitivity to electromagnetic field. How, what do you think is happening there? Mm. This is another very interesting question, also not studied at all. I wanted to study, but again, how can you study if you don't get any grant? I, I tried so many times uh, to get a grant, nothing, not a single penny to, to do this. But if you think logically, it's a continuum. The disease, it, it got more and more severe, the more exposure and the more environmental exposure you have. And this is all about, I think, not only, but our sensory system, as I mentioned, this TRP, Y1 and A1, there is the continuous activation of these sensory receptors. And uh, clinically, it can manifest into um, electromagnetic sensitivity. And what I didn't mention, some very small portion of this patient, they can develop also hypersensitivity to daily light. I had uh, such a patient, yes. It's even a less fraction of this patient and to noise. So there is a, a different types of hypersensitivities. And it's not only by moles themselves. Uh, these patients who develop electromagnetic sensitivity, many of them, they were exposed to high electromagnetic fields, but not uh, if the, the person is healthy and is exposed, it might, might not develop. So the, it's, as I said, it's a cumulative uh, exposure from many different environmental factors, and they potentiate the effects of each other. Thank you for that. And, you know, that it brings to mind, um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Dr. Dietrich Klinghart's unofficial study of mycotoxins being increased by 600% when they're near like a, a router or an EMF source. Do you find some sort of validity in that or, or just what is your opinion? I know there's no hardcore research, but I'm just curious as to your opinion. I cannot answer. I really don't know. I haven't read and I haven't thought about this. I really don't know. Okay. Yeah, no problem. No problem. Mm-hmm. One factor, your last slide that I felt was really important is, is getting the WHO to recognize this and enter it as an ICD code. How do you, like, what can we do to make this happen? Should we form a coalition? Should we form a team with us and you and many other doctors that are fighting for this to get this recognized? Like, how do we move forward to get this on record so we can start helping people? Mm. Uh, Very good question. I really don't know. Maybe maybe we need to have uh, patient organizations very active around the world interconnect uh, patients with doctors and uh, writing petitions. But it seems that they are thinking only about COVID. Uh, They have dropped all other interests. The other diseases are not existent and everything goes around uh, these variants. And I I don't know. I I have a very simple solution for that. Yes. In fact, this was the offer that I made to the Shoemaker Organization is that chronic fatigue syndrome does have an ICD code. It's an official, authorized, accepted Center for Disease Control research instrument. And if we simply get chronic fatigue syndrome researchers aware that toxic mold was reported and documented in the original cohort, this connects toxic mold and the syndrome, which sort of mandates research into this 
subject. I think any any idea is very valuable. We need to try different ways. My resources are really not enough to do this. Um, I know that the Finnish patient organization, they tried to reach WHO and explained, and they were not interested at that time. I really don't know if they, are, they will become more interested now with this current situation. But if you don't try, you will never get anything. Uh, keep trying and uh, de- <laughs> to be persistent and uh, to, to believe in what you are doing. You just do. You just do. Even you are alone. You know, as, a, as David from the Bible, he won Goliath. Even one soldier is important. I think so. Fantastic. You know, my, my research was never supported by anyone. I just did it. And well, good for you. Good for you for being that <laughs> soldier. You know, Eric. Uh, yeah, but 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 uh, but everybody can be a single soldier. But when there are many single soldiers, then there will be a big army. But uh, it's it's not that we start. Um, we need to wait that somebody will call us, join us. You start and the, the other will join. Absolutely. It reminds me of that photo on the internet where it's a bunch of, it's a school of fish and they've formed themselves into a large fish and they're swallowing the shark, you know? And like, that's where yeah. we're at. That's where we're, where we're going. We're, we're getting our school exactly. of fish together to swallow the sharks. Yeah. Being organized in patient organizations and trying to have international network always for international and um, then bombarding them with letters and demanding them that there should be because they are getting uh, your tax money so they 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 need to serve the citizens around the world if if there is increasing disease uh, increasing demand for that maybe i'm i'm too naive to think about but if you don't try, you don't get. Exactly, exactly. And my, my co-host, Keely, who was unable to join because she had to work today, she wanted to ask you a question I'm going to ask on her behalf. Yes. And, uh, she wanted to reference stachybotrys here, um, that particular mold. And she's wondering if, is it possible that stachybotrys can prime the immune system to make it more susceptible to the other factors? And how do we narrow the focus of identifying hypersensitivity causes? I guess that's a two-in-one question. I think, yeah, there are two questions in one. So the first question is, if Stachybotrys shatarum can sensitize us to other substances, I think it's, it's, it's correct because we have receptors to different compounds. We don't have receptors to each possible compound. There are so many different compounds. How many? I don't know. 10,000, 100,000. I, I don't know how much, but we, we have a limited an, a number of receptors. So if our sensory receptors are hyperactivated, then they can react to what, whatever other insulting agent so the receptors are not specific to any compound. They are polyspecific. I think it's possible, but I cannot show you the data. It's only just a logic, a logical thinking. Are you satisfied? Yes. I mean, I, you know, with every conversation that we have, I mean, we've had so many people on the show, so many physicians and researchers, and it seems like Every conversation we have just sets the bar, you know, and, and, and this conversation with you today really has set the bar really high. The second part of the question, because uh, from, from your question, I can divide it, this into two. So I think the first has been, uh, we have um, discussed, but what is the second part? The second part is how do we narrow the focus of identifying hypersensitivity causes? Uh, narrow, narrow the causes. I think we, we cannot narrow because many different types of environmental factors uh, can cause hypersensitivity syndrome. For example, the first description of multiple chemical sensitivity was described in a hairdresser. She used a different type of uh, dyes and uh, substances uh, to, to color the hair. And so 
different types. And for example, pesticides, some people living near their fields where pesticides have been in higher use, they can get multiple chemical sensitivity. I think very many different substances can cause the same reaction in humans. We cannot narrow, and there is no need to narrow. Uh, many petrochemical substances, they can cause the same syndromes. How come you feel like there's no need to narrow? But why should we? Why should we put ourselves into, into the, the cages? We should be open mind. Everything what is unnatural, if it is excessive exposure, I think many different types can, can cause hyperreactivity. I don't feel uncomfortable with this. I think uh, that our environment should, when we live or work somewhere, we should have uh, as much fresh air as possible. And uh, we don't even need to study all possible compounds because a priori we have to uh, work and live in a healthy environment. That's all. Maybe I'm speaking too unscientifically. This is the basic logic. Yeah. And we, we respect We your- can study, certainly we can study, but then we need to, to have a laboratory. We have to, to have laboratory animals. We have to make experiments. Why not? Yeah. If we want to put, to put money on, in, onto that, why not? We can study. But I think if we have an excess of money, we can do something more fancier things, uh, develop a better treatments. Absolutely. I agree. We, we need to look into it. We need to study. And, you know, like you said, it's the money is going elsewhere. And right now it's COVID. And if you're yeah. not talking about COVID, then you're irrelevant. And so, yeah, yeah. Problem, you know, yeah. Yeah. the biologists have taken over again, you know, it's, it's all about the viruses and that's where it yeah. all comes to go. Yeah. yeah. Fantastic. Thank you so much mm-hmm. again for, for doing that. And was there okay. anything that you wanted to tell our audience before we do the closing? To tell the audience, so I'm really very happy that you organized this webinar. And to to the patients, I always say to the patients, we have the proverb, uh, we say, look at the mirror. But it has the meaning, if you say something bad about other people, look, how, how do you look yourself? But I use it in another meaning. I always say to my patients, look at the mirror and say to yourself, what a wonderful day I have today. You have to smile to yourself. You, you have to, to be good and say, I will win it one day or another. And uh, to start your day, when you brush your tooth, you have to smile. And you will say that you will overcome if you have difficult times, but uh, you should believe and uh, you should be persistent with the treatments, what I have mentioned. And that's all. Oh, that was that was really touching. Thank you so much. And you know, we all know how how soul sucking mold illness is. So just having a bit of encouragement is always important. Yeah, but I I, I survived. I had very difficult times. But uh, but if you believe and you're you really work on it, and you know what you're doing, and you have even one uh, friend or your spouse or your child or somebody or your friend who supports you, I think that's enough. You will win it one day or another. It will take time. Thank you so much. Okay. <laughs> I wish you all the best. And uh, and uh, you are also doing a great job. You So you will uh, distribute this knowledge. Yes. And I will try to help you to collect more knowledge. And when we have this last article, I think this is the most important. I will send you the the PDF file because this is the roadway how to prove causality to detect mycotoxins in the urine and in the air. And if you have the same substance, then it helps in, in many legal questions. But certainly the doctors should be aware of, of the disease. And if the doctors can diagnose at the earlier stages, this is really very important for the patient's further survival and life, not to have uh, continuous exposure. Yeah, I think it's it's the core. 
it's the it's everything is in in medicine i think it's very simple actually it's not complicated yeah, and I if you that. use a common sense i think it's enough i love that i love that and you believe what the patient is telling you yeah this is what i have been taught when i was studying medicine in in moscow medical institute this how our professors taught us if you don't know how to help you can take the hand look at the eyes and listen that's enough what you can do and also my advice to, to medical doctors here if we don't know anything we, we, we have no remedies you have to listen it will help the patient absolutely and I, you know i hate to be a negative nancy i don't know where that's gone i, I everyone wants to talk no one wants to listen you know <laughs> that's the problem <laughs> Thank you everyone for joining us today. It was a lovely conversation with Dr. Tamara Tumanen from Finland. She is a Finnish microbiologist and has a lot of interest in mold simply because she was mold injured herself. And today's presentation was rocking. Again, like I said, every conversation just seems to just lift the bar up one inch higher, you know? So who knows what's going to happen next in the future, but stay tuned. We have a lot more cool interviews coming up with a lot of information and, you know, interesting stuff. So stay tuned. Please find us on all podcasting locations. We're on all the social media platforms. And please, please support us on GoFundMe and Patreon to keep this podcast rolling. Also, stay tuned for our upcoming educational courses we will be launching. That is all in the works. And we look forward to providing that for you so we can help you with your mold issues and get well. Thank you again. And we'll see you next time.